And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 108 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, December 6th, 2015. Well, folks, first of all, happy Hanukkah. I mean, of course, tonight as we record this episode, it's the first night of Hanukkah and almost Christmas time. So who's been naughty or nice on your gift-giving list? At PNR, we'd like to offer up our 2015 Holiday Gift Guide Buying Guide for those who are looking to get something truly unique. We've got a few items for you. All of these, by the way, every one perfectly and actually real. So if you're looking for a gift for that vegetarian in your life, well, then get the Psychedelic Salad Kit. That might be your thing. It comes with seeds, peats, and pots to grow purple carrots, red Brussels sprouts, stripy tomatoes, or colored Swiss chard. But maybe like Joe, veggies aren't your thing. So how about Mogard? The Mogard solves that pesky hipster issue of protecting your Mr. Movember mustache from that beer foam in your favorite craft beer. $9 without the carrying case in which to bring your soaked Mogard home. Or if you're looking to head off something other than a beer... Well, look for that movie buff in your life. How about the cricket bat from the Shaun of the Dead movie, signed, of course, by Simon Pegg, only $499 and ready for the zombie apocalypse. Or, of course, you might like the PNR-featured product, something that's a bit more intimate, bacon-scented underwear featuring state-of-the-art, moisture-wicking scent emission technology developed by NASA. That's the actual description, folks. The scent of bacon is guaranteed to last through the multiple washings up to six months, independent of your diet. And, of course, you can always wash your bacon-scented underwear in bacon-scented soap, which is nicely presented in bar form and a little over $5 per. Probably not going to be the same gift that you give to that psychedelic veggie pack, too. And finally, it wouldn't be a podcast or the Internet without cats. And we'll talk about technology startups without unicorns. So to finish our Christmas gift guide, we've got PNR's inflatable unicorn horn for a cat. For any of your startup, hipster, internet, viral, video cat-owning friends, this is sure to make you laugh, and your cat who already hates you, plot your assassination even earlier. All right, so in the meantime, of course, our little show is going to be our gift to you, from the shiny wrappings of content marketing news to the rants of coal and the stocking of raves and cookies and milk. We've got a great show for you this week, and to help me unwrap this week's gift, it's time for me to introduce my friend, my co-host, and of course, because he's the most expensive, most awesome, penultimate present, the last content marketing gift you'll unwrap on Christmas morning, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you? You did quite a bit of research there. I'm impressed. Yeah, it was totally fun. Is uh, no here's no, here's my question: if if you take the ba- bacon scented underwear and you put it into the laundry, does it make everything smell like bacon, or does it lose its bacon smelling goodness? I did not do a user test drive on the bacon scented underwear. I am going to assume that it probably does actually make the entire laundry smell like bacon. But come on. What, doesn't everybody want their entire wardrobe to smell like bacon? I don't know. I mean, if you go out to certain parts of the forest, or I mean, I would be scared that somebody's going to pick up on that scent, and then you might be, you know, you might, you wouldn't want that Bacon-scented sort of, unmentionables. I, exactly. I know, I think it's fantastic, except if you were the vegetarian, want the vegetarian gift, I'm sure you're not going to want the bacon-scented underwear at the same time. But that would be that's that right, would and be you could of course you well you and you could of course wash it all in the bacon scented soap, um, and just make everything smell like bacon. I have a feeling that you would probably throw up after <laughs> after a few of those. I don't know. It's it's just I don't know. It would seem like it would be greasy. But anyways, let's just go on. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Oh no! You <laughs> did I say that? Did I do that? <laughs> All right. Let's uh, oh, no. let's get well, on. To maybe the news we should move on week. to the news. <laughs> yes. Before we but go any further, anyway, um, General Electric is our first uh, story of the week here, and it comes to us courtesy of QZ.com. GE is dumping primetime advertising. Big uh, move here, I think, and a early adopter move here. General Electric, one of the fastest-growing U.S. advertising spenders, is abandoning the primetime TV market, so says the article, for one where commercials have a better stance of standing out, live TV. 
Chief Marketing Officer Linda Boff, who we know it, uh, as a friend and family of CMI, told Business Insider she's funneling the bulk of GE's TV advertising dollars to live programming. Says Linda, we still believe in TV, but we believe in an audience that's going to stay, she said. Last year, GE spending on U.S. advertising jumped 42% to $393 million by advertising ages calculations. And they've moved, and the article goes on to explain, to more branded content that will be put out separately to native advertising and sponsored content, which is, of course, in the middle of something like Jimmy Fallon, and they actually have a screenshot from that, and, of course, content marketing. So what say you, Joe? Is this something that we're going to start seeing a lot more of from other companies, or is this uh, is GE sort of way ahead of the curve here? Or what do you think? I don't know if they're way ahead of the curve, but we're definitely going to be seeing more of this. There's no doubt about it because, I mean, how – how many of us, including you and I, we, we both love to record anything and then watch it later uh, because we don't want to obviously sit through the commercials. Although I know you like a lot of the commercials, but I, I still like to forward, forward through as many as possible. But it's in, uh, this is a the branded content, uh, native advertising play here is interesting because these opportunities didn't exist a few years ago because media companies like you know like uh, Saturday Night Live or Tonight Show they weren't making these available and now they are uh and i i i can't every time i watch conan o'brien he has he sponsored he's shilling something every episode <laughs> yeah exactly I, so i'm under the assumption that the majority of the revenue almost like a buzzfeed model the majority of the revenue they have is, is coming or or a good substantial portion of it is coming from uh you know product mentions and it's almost like we're going back back to the past like you had texaco theater and, uh, and we're going to see more and more of these where the whole thing where, let's say you have a 30-minute program, we might not even get into commercials at all sometime in the, I don't know what the near future is, but sometime in the next 5, 10, 15 years because all the, uh, all the advertising spend is going to be within the programming itself. So I don't know. Do, I do you think agree that's that? a really – I do absolutely agree with that, and I think it's going to be really interesting because I do think that there's going to be – one brave, and I don't know if it's brave is the right word, but one brave show, maybe it's Conan, maybe it's somebody else who's actually going to do and say, let's go, let's put on our 60 minute show, but let's be on air for 60 minutes, right? And and basically everything that would have been an interruptive ad where you can click away or fast forward through, quite frankly, is an in-show stream. And whether that's, you know, sort of getting into the product mentions, as you can see in the screenshot that they have with uh, with GE and, and, and Jimmy Fallon sort of doing something that's sort of natively placed in there, or whether it's actually a full-on stop for 30 seconds and just do, read the ad copy, or whether it's something even more integrated where it's just product placement. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think it'll be really interesting to see one show sort of stand out and go, you know what, we're going to go on, you know, we're going to be a half hour sitcom or we're going to be a full hour talk show of whatever it is. And we're just going to monetize it in stream. I think it's going to be really interesting here in the next couple of years. Yeah, so basically, instead of spending, you know, 30 minute programming where you're pitching a product uh, at 3.30 in the morning, uh, we could we could see the, hey, I'm buying a, a 30 minute time slot on CBS and I get to do whatever I want with it, and it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to build an audience that way, and yeah, we'll slip in our products and services mm-hmm. in an interesting way, and I think we can drive people to that. So instead of just having sure you know, Coca, uh, uh, a, a glass of Coca Cola, let's say, like they always did on American Idol, and say, "Oh, there's Coke, and look at the the logos facing out. We can see that. Wow." Where they're right. actually in charge. Well, there's that. Well, there, and there's that. That stays, right? Yeah. That's easy enough to keep and stay and all of that. And then they can sort of say, okay, there's going to be, you know, instead of our one hour, uh, you know, show where there may be, let's call it, you know, 12 spots, 10 spots available in a one hour show, um, we're actually going to do six that are going to be a minute and a half long each instead of, you know, 12, 30 second spots or something like that. And they're going to be a minute and a half and it's going to be Jimmy reading, you know, something or somebody coming out and playing a game or somebody coming out and doing something funny and interesting and integrated into the content. But clearly something that has to do with the, you know, with the product or the you know, service being marketed. And I, I just think that's a really interesting thing. It's going it, to, you know, we, I think we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this on the show where we talked about advertising evolving. And we said, you know, is there a place where, 
you can reduce the amount of advertising you're doing, but by doing so, increase its real estate value to the point where instead of doing, you know, 100 spots on a, you know, on a website, you do 50 and you make those things more valuable and you just, you know, you, you just, you, you make the money up in, in sort of quantifying a much more quality spend rather than sort of burying people in commercial messages. Well, I, they could, uh, that, that you could see happening really quickly. So the Tonight Show could say, look, instead of having an hour, whether they have, let's say, 40 minutes of programming and 20 minutes of commercials, they could literally go and say, we're going right. to do an yeah. hour of programming. We're going to insert and we're going to actually jump, you know, increase revenue by 20% because we're going to pro. I mean, right. they're going to have more costs against that, but they could charge a premium because those are obviously premier spots. They take a lot more time to do and they're limited. So you can charge more for them. So, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a so, really interesting I mean, move. I, I was watching uh, ESPN the other day, and John Gruden was doing Gruden's Gridiron or something brought to you by Burger King. Yeah, I like, saw that. <laughs> I've seen that, too. <laughs> like, geez, he can't get away from this. It's everything. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen – have you ever seen have you ever seen? Um, – oh, what's his name? I'm, I'm, mess, I'm forgetting his name now. The comedian who does the – Frank Caliende. Yeah, Frank uh, Caliendo. Caliendo, yeah. I yeah. think. Who, who does – he? his Jay Gruden – his John Gruden – is unbelievably awesome. It's just, it's so good. Every time he does it, I like roll on the floor laughing. Well, he did, when he did the impressions of Gruden and Tarico and uh, Stephen A. Smith, and he did them all uh, to the opening yeah. of Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, my God, it's so funny. Anyways, so. All right, we digress. Moving on to our next. Now, this next story we got sent uh, by a few people. So, a quick hat tip here to certainly to James Gardner and to Tim Walters, who both sent us this separately. Um, and then others sent it along as well through Twitter. Like, what, what do you guys think about this? So, this uh, comes to us courtesy of Medium.com. So, of course, a Medium article here. And the article is called The Rise of Homeless Media. And I guess this has gotten our name written all over it, Joe. Um, The article starts out, or the blog post really starts out by saying, since the advent of the Internet, publishers have been trying to leverage distribution channels such as social media networks to drive traffic to their websites. Now, though, content can be hosted and monetized on these third-party platforms through services including Facebook's Instant Articles or Snapchat's Discover. As such, we can see the emergence of a new wave of homeless media companies that don't require a homepage. Their sole purpose? To syndicate content. And then he goes on to talk through making a case for this argument about how homeless media is really going to start. So now I ask you, Mr. Source of the publisher world, what what do you think about the rise of homeless media? I mean, there's an obvious knee-jerk reaction that you would think we might have to this, but I don't know. Maybe he's got a point. What do you think? Okay, so in, in <laughs> okay, oh, get ready, folks. No, no, it's no, no, snap no. into your chairs. In, yeah, in it's, theory, it's gonna... <laughs> no. When you read this article, by the way, it's, it's a fascinating article. Yeah, anybody listening, it is this, a fascinating article. Yeah, he's well written. Now, if you yeah. believe that these platforms, you're talking about, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or Medium or Snapchat or any of the other ones, if you believe that they will keep to their current promises and they will give you access. To an audience, and they won't change your rules, change their rules at any time. This is absolutely the way we should be thinking, and we should be going. And we want to make sure we, where's our audience at, and how do we build an audience on those platforms, and we don't force them to come back to uh, a destination maybe they don't want to go to as it becomes harder and harder and mobile to get them back to your own destination. Yes, in a perfect world like that, great. Here's the thing that concerns me: we don't live in that world. We, right. we already know that Facebook has changed the rules. We are in the process of watching Twitter and LinkedIn change their rules and say, I mean, I'm, it's interesting in looking at, uh, I'm, I'm on the beta for the link, new, uh, LinkedIn app, which is much better than their old app, but I can, already That's see, right. I can already see that they're ferreting out some things and they're showing me other things, uh, and I don't have a choice in that. So they are basically curating the own, their own content that I, they think that I would like, and that make, means that it's not equal for everyone. Um, so <laughs> you you basically you're not going to have contr- you're not going to have control over those cha- those uh, that audience base, 
And what I really thought was interesting, and I don't know if you went to it, but they, they show this example of Now This, the media company. Did you click on the website for Now This? I did. Yep, yeah. I did. So basically, for those people that don't haven't been there, so Now This is a you know successful media company uh, that monetizes their content on different platforms, but they have their homepage reads, homepage, period. Even the word sounds old. Today, the news lives where you live, and it tells you to connect with them on, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and Vine and all those other places. Um, now, here's what's scary. Tomorrow, if, if any of those say, oh, okay, so now this, I'm, I'm going to charge you for access or I'm not going to let you show your content to the audience that you built in any, and they're going to do that, then now this and their whole business model as a publisher is done. And a, and a, and a smart media company would never do that. They would never put the control... Really, the control here is the communication with your audience. The, the, the whole value, and you talk about this all the time. I've, been, I've listened to six master classes over the past three weeks, and you talk about this <laughs> at will, that the value is not in the content itself. It's in the audience. That's the value. Right. We create the content to build the audience and to see a different behavior in that audience over time. Now, if we build audiences on other people's platforms that we don't control – that's a scary proposition. I wouldn't want to do that. And that's why, you know, when I get up there and I talk about BuzzFeed and I say, look, at BuzzFeed's created a billion-dollar-plus property, but the majority of their audience connections are on other people's platforms that other people control. They've got to be scared to death, which is why we're seeing BuzzFeed move toward more of an email subscription offering. If you keep going down the rabbit hole, you'll see that they have more and more opportunities to sign up to segmented emails. So that's my take from the publisher standpoint. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's right. my take. Uh, well, I do. I do in ninety or ninety-five percent of the cases. Um, here's where I think he may have a point, and I think there is an opportunity, which is, and so, and I'm going to say this, and I'm not even convinced of it myself as I say it, which is. If I were a production company, so there's a model, of course, in Hollywood where you produce content and you have, you know, basically you sell the content and then kind of don't care what happens to it, right? You know, so I produce films, television shows, and I do so either for hire or I do so at, you know, on an open marketplace, and so I can see a scenario where if it gets beyond – we, we talked about this last week or a couple of weeks ago where if the compensation gets beyond that of advertising click-throughs, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, if Facebook – if I make a deal with Facebook Instant Articles as a content producer and they say, you know what? We're going to pay you X hundred thousand or X millions of dollars per year for your content because we find it that valuable. Yeah. And I'm going to write you a contract, and it has nothing to do with traffic, because what you've done by say by the home what what you're doing with homeless media, if you're a homeless media provider, I I hate this term by the way, but okay, the, if you're a homeless media provider, the only way you can assure yourself of the value of content is by getting paid for it up front. In other words, before it get ex- gets executed, and so. If I make movies or I make news or I make feature articles or I make content or I make some sort of thing that these platforms are going to want to distribute and they're going to make money off the advertising, if I can sell that, then, quite frankly, I become much more of a B2B organization where my quote-unquote audience is Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Snapchat and, and all these platforms that much like the relationship of production companies and television networks today where the television networks don't produce the television. They actually hire companies to actually produce them, many of them owned by actors and actresses and stuff like that. And so ultimately, if I'm you know, an independent sort of producer and I have a production company and I can create this wonderful content that can be monetized by selling it, well, now I can see that homeless media thing taken off, at least for me. And so I don't need a website at that point. I don't need a center of gravity because I'm not trying to build an audience other than where I'm selling my, my content. Well, In other words, I don't have to go direct to the consumer. But it's, it, what this reads to me, and coming from, you know, obviously, you're Hollywood, so coming from the movie standpoint, uh, this is what the movies have been doing since the dawn of time. They don't own the theaters. They don't own the, the distribution of that. They create the movie, and then they 
negotiate distribution through the, I mean, it's, it's not, yes, a, but they, but, but they get paid, but they get paid on ticket prices. Yeah. They get paid. See, they get paid on ticket prices. This is the same as bands and record companies, right? They get, they get paid based on the sales of the particular thing. What needs to happen is, is, is much like the deals where you've got independent production companies, um, that make, let's say a television series and they just sell the series outright to a Netflix or an HBO or, or to somebody who's going to distribute the content and they've made their money. And now, independent. Now they might have bonuses in there if it does really well or something like that. But quite frankly, it's up to the it's up to the platforms to then market that content. There's nothing. There's no remuneration based on the number of tickets or the butts they put in the seat or how many how many clicks or views they get. It's all based on the independent value of the content. Well, let's look at it from a brand's perspective. And I guess I'm thinking of something a model like you know Disney. And you and I have talked about this for a long time where. You know, even though Disney produces cars and makes $300 million in gross sales off of Cars the Movie itself and ticket sales, they made over a billion dollars on the merchandising of, of that. Right, exactly. So if you exactly. were from a brand perspective, you could say, look, if I can get out here and create this content, build these audiences and these platforms that I don't necessarily own or control, as long as I can show at the end of the day that we're you know growing revenue, doing something, some behavior is happening, it's just a, it's just a harder... It's just a harder proposition to do that because we don't exactly we can't communicate directly with that audience. We don't know who that is. We don't have any data on them. And I think that's yeah. And I think until we see that happen at the back end, I think that I, you're right. And I think that, like I said, this is a very very small for the for the lion's share of the world. This is not gonna this is not gonna be great, right? This is not gonna work. And but it's only for a very small percentage of companies that this is even possible. But so, but I don't, you know, the, the, I think, you know, to your point, this is, this is something that is happening. And so I think it's a like, you know, good or bad. This is, this is, this is something I, so I think the article he's, I think he's right. It is happening. Oh yeah. You, you know? Well, I think from a disruptive standpoint, and he even mentions this because I think my favorite part about this is if you're event, it, it, the whole end of this is if you're a venture capitalist looking for a media business with growth potential, you know, goes into, you know, look for new media companies that have a distinctive voice, uh, you know, content first companies. You know, of course, that's what we talk about in my book with low overhead in product development, websites and mobile apps. So you can compete against a traditional media operator or let's say a larger brand that has, you know, more budget and more infrastructure where you can go into one of these platforms and obviously youtube has been doing this since the dawn of time right so you can go be a youtuber you can have a distinctive voice you can create an audience on that platform you can work it really well you don't necessarily have to have your own media site to make this happen but what we do see let's use youtube for example you see all the youtubers now that now that youtube is coming back saying ha well if you want your content seen by these people you're going to have to do this you're going to have to sign that they're all saying, okay, well, if you want premium content, you have to go back to this site or my site or sign up for this e-newsletter or something because, again, they're scared. Once you get to what, – if you're really small and you don't care, it's great. <laughs> exactly. But once right. you get – yeah, once you get and you're growing, you have, you're have a multimillion-dollar company or you're a con- – you know, let's say you're a brand and you're creating this amazing content and you're starting to get some resonance going on, then you're trying to protect it a little bit because you get scared that – you know they can turn the switch and shut you off, which any of these companies. Can. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. So, uh, so net takeaway. What do you think? I would, if you're going to do this as a brand, I would, because because you got to think about it past the oh yeah, I'm going to syndicate my content over and above what I already do on my website, and really I use that syndication to drive back to my site. But this that that's not what this is. This says. Just you're just trying to build an audience on these particular platforms, and you don't care to drive them back to your own destination. Actually, that's what a lot of companies are already doing. I mean, this is nothing new. That's why you and I get in front of these marketers and say, "Hey, look, you can do this all day. You can leverage on on these other platforms that you have no control over, but be careful, right? Because don't come back to don't come crying back to mama <laughs> when they shut you down, mama. and you're and you're like, oh my, yeah, you're like, oh my god, what happened? <laughs> I don't want to die. Sometimes Anyways, wish I'd never been born at all. Carry on, carry on. Oh, Anyways, we should do. We should do a video. We should do a video like the Wayne's give... World. You and I should do the video of the Wayne's World thing. That would be funny. 
Well, we were talking about that as a separate business where you and I, well, you were talking about it when we saw really bad presentations. If we see it like a real, is a really Oh, I love this idea so much. You don't understand how much I'd love this idea so much. It's so great. A mystery science theater. Basically, a mystery science theater. Yeah, it's such a great idea. Mystery science theater for Joe and I to, to watch bad webinars and stuff like that. So, anyway. And then we just like make fun of them the whole time. Yeah, but like but in a nice picture. way, in a nice, but but because we love, that's why. All right, that's yeah. We never we we're we're not haters. That's right. We always that's right. We always love. So I don't. Yeah. So that's my my take on this is just be careful. Yes, absolutely. You might have an opportunity here because your competition might not want to do this, but there's a. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, give it a try. But I would have a, I would have a backup. Exactly. Plan. All right, moving on to our next story here, which comes to us courtesy of Ad Age, um, and the headline here is Credit Suisse building a social network of rich people. Um, and this article starts out by saying membership for the Three Comma Club. You remember the Three Comma Club from Silicon Valley has been a hot oh, yeah. commodity Absolutely. enjoyed by Russ Hanneman and his billionaire counterparts in the fictional show Silicon Valley, but maybe not for long. So uh, Credit Suisse is exploring the idea of making the Money Club concept a reality based upon a trademark filing for Eleven. The name of the thing would be Eleven, which would be, I guess, turning it up to, I suppose, um, an invitation-only social network of sorts for very high net worth individuals. 11, uh, a play on the company's 11 Madison Avenue address in New York City, would attract users with exclusive events such as private auctions um, and all of this kind of stuff. The wealth threshold is currently unclear, but the goal would be to encourage people with assets of more than eight figures to join. I mean, that's a small that's a small number of people. Um, anyway, so it goes on to talk about how it would basically... Uh, really focus on financial services, financial investing, venture capital, private equity, real estate, art, wine, jewelry, boats, yachts, cars, and other luxury items, and philanthropy. What do you think? This is uh, this is this is really content marketing to the one percent. What do you what do you suppose? Is this well, a good idea? Well first, of, well, first of all, we have to mention that this does not exist. This was no, just that's right. A it's Credit Suisse trademark filing which i think is really odd though that they went they put a lot of effort into this trademark filing before launching it maybe it's in the works maybe it's going to be launched any day now or maybe it's never going to be launched so i think we have to that's right we have to yeah this is all speculation at this point but this this, is is a content marketing project that they have in the they have in the making for a a private social media network but outside of outside of that i love the fact because you're saying this is our audience like we don't we don't want the ninety nine point nine 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 percent and it really is that zero 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 one percent that could actually afford to come to these things that'll dig being around these people that have these kind of uh, assets. Well, and uh, and well, yeah. I mean, is I mean, you've had some experience in this. Area. I have. So uh, the reason, so that if you hear a little bit of cynicism in my voice, it's because I do have some experience. So back in the dot com days, so we're going back all the way to the early two thousands. I actually there was this. So part of my job when I was just, uh, running strategy at um, at this big consulting firm um, for entertainment and media practice kinds of businesses. One of the business pitches that we actually started to build and research and do. So I've I've actually researched the the market of this was for a company who wanted to do exactly this. They wanted to build a social media network for billionaires. And they had a whole business plan and they and 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 all of that. And by the way, today, according to Forbes, there are a roughly eighteen hundred, less than two thousand billionaires in the world. And so there are 1,800 of them, um, you know, roughly this year, there were that, which is an up, actually, from like 14 or 1,600, which were last year. So you're talking about a total pool of people of 2,000 people, which so, – so take that, first of all. The second thing is I actually did this again. Somebody else had this project idea in the mid-2000s. Um, and I actually worked with an again, just having some experience in this space. Here's the thing: what I, what I, what I, what little I do know about the research I've done into this market is these people don't want to talk with each other, <laughs> and they certainly don't want to post things about themselves on a social network that would perhaps open them up for any kind of criticism, or quite frankly, show themselves in a less than commanding way to their peers. That you know, they don't. There, there's you know, if I put up a picture of my yacht on my on eleven, 
the last thing I want is somebody going, well, my here's my picture of my yacht on 11, which is bigger than yours, right? So it's these people inherently have larger than normal egos and they they don't you know it will be very challenging i suspect for them to actually do something like this i guess is my only point so and the only reason i have a take on this is all because i've actually been down this road twice with two other companies that wanted to do it well i i guess the way that i and i know it says social networking services but the way that i read it was not necessarily like hey here's my new yacht what do you think and everybody likes it I think that it'd be more like an eyes wide shut type of thing where they're all in bed. They all like go to the special place with the special with bacon scented underwear. It was an eyes wide shut party with bacon scented underwear. There we go. But I think that, no, I think that, yes, it's all in the execution. The idea I think could work, but it all depends on the execution. But if you're, if you're talking about where, uh, you know, you do that that one event where you get what like thirty or forty like amazing thought leaders in the same room for every year, and you're you know you're a part of that. And you're all talking about how you're going to solve the world's problems and stuff like that. If you're looking at that kind of a execution, I think it could work. Oh, I think it can totally work like that. Yes, absolutely. That is yeah, I, there. There's no and those and by the way, those things exist, right? I mean, yes. there's everything from the Aspen Institute to to Drucker's, not Drucker's, um, uh, Buffett's sort of weekend away thing. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different organizations that are out there. Rob report for, you know, for crying out loud is a great publication that, that, that focuses on that market. So there are lots of, there's lots of institutional type of, you know, events and stuff like that that happen. It can work. I, I just, I, 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 I don't know. I have in my head sort of this Facebook for the three comma club and I can't get out of the I can't get him out of my head. That guy from Silicon Valley going, but the doors don't open this way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's a very interesting idea. I will be very interested to see if they launch a content property around this thing, because I think it could be it could be really interesting to see and and to see if they can actually. I mean, here's the thing. If they launch it, we probably won't ever hear about it because we are not, not the target market. Here's the, right. So here. But here's the other idea. The other idea would be, instead of them launching something new and, and how difficult that is for a fresh launch, they should just go buy Rob Report and call it a day. Well, yes, that's that's exactly what. The, but the, you know, here's the thing: Rob Report is not for just billionaires, right? Rob, Rob Report is goes <laughs> it goes down market quite a bit into the millionaire club, which, by the way, opens up the audience quite a bit. As soon as yeah. you go from, you know, I mean. W- here, you want to hear a fun a fun fact that people don't r- normally recognize. The difference between a million and a billion is so big. (laughs) You know, if a million million seconds is 11 days, a billion seconds is 31 years. And so it's like the the difference between millionaire and billionaire is just is just enormous. And it's so but but so anyway, yeah, I I think that uh, you've got a good point there. Yeah, like if you were going in, like you were a billionaire, you'd have like the black mask on. And if you were a millionaire, you'd have like bunny ears on or something like that. They would just scoff at you. It's like, I you can't go believe watch, you. You need to go I watch can't Eyes Wide Shut again. I can't believe you actually came here. Anyways. Oh, no. Did you just put on your Mr. Burns voice? All right. <laughs> It's one of All those right. shows, folks. It is one it of those shows. Our last shows. our last article for this show, thank goodness we're here, is there's a fresh business case for content marketing. Uh, this from John Bell's uh, blog on TypePad. Great blog post, I thought. Just a really well thought out blog post. And the blog post, and by the way, hat tip to Scott Monty here, who on his, if you haven't read his newsletter, it's just a great newsletter. And I got this link from his newsletter. Um Reading the market trades online, says John, one would get the sense that every brand has gotten wise to the value of content marketing and is busy shifting budget dollars from ineffective display or interruptive advertising to juicy content. But attend a few marketing events where brands are presenting their progress or even their commitment to this area, and you quickly see things are moving more slowly. I think we've, we're all well aware of that. Working inside brands is a process. There is a few lightning strikes of wisdom that shift behavior overnight. Rather, a steady effort of communicating the benefits and addressing the risks of new marketing approaches may take hold over time. He then goes on to explain in this wonderfully written blog post, and I'm 
I'm just uh, I'm already pimping my reaction to it by telling you this. Just all of the different ways business cases are getting made for content marketing. And um, so, what did you think? What did you what did you think about this, Joe? We didn't talk about this before the show. What did you think about this post? We did, we did not. You know, a couple things I just forgot. I have to do a shout out to John Bechtel who shot me over the GE study or the story, and then uh, Credit Suisse was courtesy of at Log- Logocracy Copy, Logocracy Copier, which is I think it's Dan Huchel. I'm going to say that wrong. Dan. Dan, I'm going to mess up your last name. I'm not even going to say it. Dan, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, John, John, you know, John Bell is a super interesting guy. I had dinner with him uh, about uh, six months at a conference. I believe he's at Travelers now. I think he's running. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and in fact, it says that on his blog. Yeah, he's at Travelers now. Yeah. So first thing I got to say to John, John, what's with the type pad blog? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, right. there's, only two, there's only two people in the world on a type pad blog. It's Seth Godin and John yeah. Bell. I mean, yeah, there you go. I mean, I guess that's good company, but it's the first, I'm like, what is this layout? Oh, my God. Oh my God it's what's up pad. with the type pad blog, what's, man? What's up, man? I've got to have to set up a tweet. John, man, what's up with the type pad blog? You know what I, love, what I loved about this is when he was talking about content marketing buy-in, and he says it buy-in never ends. That's and right. You have uh, to such sell a- content marketing into the organization all the time, and I think – that a lot of people that we talk to think that, oh, no, I've just got to sell this case once and I'm done and then I can move on. And you don't realize that it's an ongoing training initiative because you're breaking through 50 years, 60 years of this is the way that we market our products and services to a different communication model. Right. And not only and not only that, I mean, but it just continues year after year after year. It's like, you know, we you know, I, 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 we made this point in the masterclass, which is, you know, you're never done making the business case because, you know, some of the most successful content marketing initiatives that we've mentioned, that you've heard of, that you hear at every conference, if you get in a room with those people, what they'll tell you is, I, I still struggle to make my, I have to make my business case every year. The ROI argument, the pol- politics, the, all that stuff, that's just, that's, that doesn't stop after you get permission to go do the blog. It's it's every single time. So it's a, it's an ongoing process. No, I mean, I love this article. I think everyone needs to read it where he's talking about not only the buy-in. He talks about how native advertising can work as long as we're focused on the audience's needs and we're not telling, we're leading with what we want to say. We're leading with what the audience needs to hear. And basically, the whole article is about that. It's really about... Yeah audience first communications and everything we do even in your advertising they don't want ads they want stuff that's about them that's going to help them that's going to help them live better lives get better jobs whatever the case is and if we communicate that way in whatever we then purchase public relations advertising content marketing we'll be much more successful and it's just it's just a very sound article i got i got nothing but love for it it's one of those things where you go, somebody, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, you just want to stand up and applaud where you go, you know, somebody is really getting it and doing it well. So, so thank you to, thank you to John for, for doing that because it's a really good piece and well worth the read, well worth the read for sure. Um, well, speaking of well worth the read and speaking of stand up people, we have a wonderful sponsor to talk about. We absolutely do. This week's sponsor of PNR's This Old Marketing is our good friends at Wyden. They are offering the Dam Decision Guide. That's D A M. I did not just cuss because I don't do that. <laughs> the, the Dam Decision Guide, your guide to getting the best digital asset management solution for your organization. And you cannot have effective content marketing without efficient content management, especially when it comes to the rich media assets that require another layer of planning and investment. So start 2016 the right way and get a handle on your marketing assets. Our good sponsor here, Wyden, has created this one-page damn decision guide to help put to help you put in the right place all these wonderful digital assets that you have because, as we know, Robert... It is uh, a cluster out there with a lot of people oh, dear. Don't know where <laughs> yeah. they don't know where their content's at. They can't find it. It's not organized. And if we don't know where our assets are at, it's going to be hard to distribute those to the right people at the right time at the right de- device. So this piece is straight up, u- straight up utility, offering a proven, repeatable process for making some good <laughs> – sorry, this is the fun – some good damn or damn good <laughs> decisions. I love Thank that. Thank you, copywriter, on that one. There you can we get go. It at, at bit.ly slash widen. That's W I D E N dash D A M dash guide. That's 
bit.ly slash widen, W-I-D-E-N dash D-A-M dash guide. And thanks again to our friends at Widen for supporting this old marketing. But it's so it's such an important thing, and, and thank you to the Wyden folks for sponsoring it. But it is, I mean, so an old CMS guy like me, I mean, I, I I just out of curiosity will often ask clients or people at a workshop what they're using or how they're using it, and to the number of times that I hear of people who've spent a million dollars on their CMS or digital asset management system, and. I go, great, how's it going? And they go, you know what, it's horrible because I still have to maintain this Excel spreadsheet of URLs where I have to locate all my stuff. It's just ridiculous. And so having a having a great process and a great solution to be able to do that is just, it couldn't be more important. And interestingly, you know, it, we're seeing digital asset management become such a popular thing now that content is being so, you know, driving the business so much. So this is a really no, timely, a really timely thing. That's a great point. I mean, you and I talked about making sure the digital asset management uh, as a topical area is, is we're going to cover it at Intelligent Content Conference in March. So, and by Absolutely, the way, yes. Uh, subs- make sure you sign up to ICC. March <laughs> wow. 7th through 9th, 2016. Is that subtle? That well, played, well played, sir. Well played. Well played. Ex- excellent. We'll bring Mr. Burns back. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Okay. All right. That was my horrible Mr. Burns. So now, folks, it is your time for the favorite part of the show, which is our rants and rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that makes us feel like, oh, Santa Claus or makes us feel like, I don't know, uh, what's that? uh, What's the the guy from... What's the guy from Rudolph's Christmas, the Mr. Freeze Meister? No, that's the New Year's. That's the, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I could remember. I, I know what you're talking about. Mr. Meisterburger Burgermeister? That's what it is. Meisterburger Burgermeister. Anyway. So. Good for you. Uh, Good for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. All right. So let's see. I go first because I have this old marketing. Yeah, you got um, it. And on. so this, I have a rave this week. And I, I'm, I mean, this is like... This is like fanboy level rave sort of stuff. So as most of you know who listen to the show and with any regularity um, and know me, I am a huge Clayton Christensen fan. So um, so when he writes an article and it appears in Harvard Business Review, which it most often does considering he does most of his work with Harvard, um, I read it. And so it came out this, this month and this month's issue. And then also an interview with uh, Stephen Denning, who's also a really great author, by the way, if you have not read any of his stuff. But he interviewed Clayton Christensen. And so I'm pairing two things together uh, for this. <clears throat> and the, the one that I want you to read, obviously, is, is, is his new article called What is Disruptive Innovation? And I love it for really sort of, well, multiple reasons, but basically four main reasons. And I'll sort of outline each four of why I love this article so much. Because So the first thing is Christensen, and he's got co-authors on this article, by the way, but what he does is he basically says, the first thing I really love is, is that he says there's something, one of the things he talks about is the definition. And he says why definitions are so important. So for those of us that are sort of thinking about the definition of content marketing and why that's so important, he actually goes on to talk about why that's a really, really important thing. As he says in the article, unfortunately, disruption theory 15 years later, basically, or 20 years later, is really the becoming a victim of its own success. And he says, despite broad dissemination, the theory's core concepts have been widely misunderstood and its basic tenets frequently misapplied. And so, I mean, that just, I was like, wow, that is content marketing in a nutshell. But then he goes on to basically say the essential refinements in the theory over the last 20 years have been overshadowed by the popularity of the initial discussion. And so, again, it was just like his, which is basically the reason he wrote this article was to sort of clarify its evolution, et cetera, et cetera. So it was basically his saying, this is what, this is what disruption is really is. And so read the following, which leads us to the second reason I really love this article is because he really talks about the usefulness of this thing. And as he says, it's rare that a technology or a product is inherently sustaining or disruptive. And when new technology is developed, disruption theory does not dictate what managers should do. Instead, it helps them make a decision. And so very often on this show, we talk about branded content or native advertising or even interruptive advertising like we did in this show. And sometimes it can sound like we disagree with the approach. But being very clear, we love all of those approaches. Um, basically, they're all great, but understanding the distinction is what gives you that 
insightful to make good business decisions. And that's our main point with all this. And that leads us to the third piece that I really love, uh, or the third reason I really love this piece, which is he talks about how disruption is evolving. And as he says in the article, we are eager to keep expanding and refining the theory of disruptive innovation, and much work lies ahead. For example, universally effective responses to disruptive threats remain elusive. And they—they basically, he goes on to say, we're going to continue to learn and evolve the practice. And of course, and that is absolutely what we love. This is what this show is about. It is what CMI is all about. It is what we do at the master classes every single year is try and evolve the practice in this sort of real-time world that we actually live in. And that brings us to the fourth and final piece of where I love this, this piece so much is where he says is it's not a golden bullet. You know, it's not uh, basically this isn't going to just solve everything. As he says so many times um, where uh, he says basically disruption innovation doesn't describe or explain everything about innovation specifically or even a biz- business success more generally. There are so many other things at play, they say in the article. And, and so many times when we talk about content marketing as it, you know, we, we hear it as some sort of binary alternative to marketing. You know, when we see the death of content marketing or the death of content or something like that, they usually are, are proclaiming the death because they're saying that other elements or new elements are working. And that's the whole thing about this is content marketing, everything about what we preach here is that content marketing is but one aspect of an integrated marketing strategy. We believe it's a good one. We believe it's an important one, a very valuable approach, but by no means the only approach to solving um, a company's successful strategy. And so here's the, th- here's the thing of the ultimate the, of the whole article. There Maybe your tweetable moment if you're looking for one from this rant is, I believe that the smart marketer is not looking for the answers that end or define some exploration of marketing. I think smart marketing people look for every new vein, pathway, or tunnel that opens up into larger opportunities. In other words, I'm not looking to end my journey and exploration of marketing by finding some magic bullet. I'm looking to open up even bigger questions that I have to go wrestle with and answer, and that's what makes this career fun. And so I just was truly inspired by this article. Full caveat, full transparency. I am a fanboy um, as, uh, of all. So, so, but that's my rave this week. I just thought it was great. I just need to let you know that I actually have a lighter on. <laughs> I, no, you yeah, don't. I was, oh yeah. yeah, I was. I'm swaying back and forth as you were doing that. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I have. Um, I have two very quick raves. So it's hard. I, we rarely do a show where we all have raves. Um, but this whole show has been raves. really ravey. I mean, it's been it's been a little goofy, but it's been but it's been but it's been lots of it's lots the, of positive. It's because of the it's because of the festival of lights. It's the, yeah. that's exactly I happy. Think it, I think if we go back the last two years, we'll find the same thing happen. Happy Hanukkah is exactly exact right. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is uh, this is from our good friend Adam Frazier, who sends us stuff all the time, and this is from his blog Eco Junction. And Adam went through all of the uh, details of Facebook's results, uh, investor presentation, earnings call, and everything, and he distilled them into 10 key points. And so I wanted to make sure I linked that up in the show notes to make sure that people were interested in it. But there's a couple things that I wanted to pull out that I thought were the most important and just interesting to marketers to know about. So the third one on his list was Facebook and Instagram now account for more than 20% of all mobile minutes spent in the USA. That just blew me. Wow, back. that's unbelievable. <laughs> that's crazy. That? That's amazing. On one fifth of all the time is Facebook and Instagram now. So that's the one area that I thought was interesting. The second area uh, is number nine. Facebook continues to invest an impressive twenty-eight percent of revenue into R and D. Twenty-eight percent of revenue into R and D. That's wow. I mean, and then plus you've got. Uh, you know, longer-term investments like Internet.org and Oculus Rift that they're just, you know, are going to pay off for them, but they're just investing at this point. So I just thought that was interesting. Uh, number 10, the business generated a record level of free cash flow for the quarter of $1.4 billion. That's double the amount from last year. Wow. Uh, so that's amazing. And so and here's the last one that I wanted to, I thought was interesting just because you've been talking about you know, Facebook paying for content and content syndication lately. I thought this was an interesting take. So average revenue per user on Facebook hit a record level of $2.97 per user 
and Adam says this as a side note, would you pay a few dollars per month for an ad-free service? I just thought that was interesting. Would you pay three bucks a month for an ad-free Facebook? Would you pay three bucks a month? I wouldn't be surprised if they test something, some, some of that out. Because if you think about it, you know, there's, I mean, $2.97 a user, folks. That's, you know, that's getting down to a point where they could, they could really get creative with some things because obviously they have a lot, they have 2.5 million advertisers, by the way, which I thought was amazing. But a lot of these deals are quite small. So it's just interesting. So that was the one. I just wanted to put that aside. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Disclaimer. I've, I've been, I'm a Facebook shareholder. I've been a Facebook shareholder since the beginning. So, uh, and, uh, it's been a good, good run. Uh, yeah, they've, yes, been doing, they've been doing quite well. Happy so Hanukkah to you. I, Happy. Well, as, as much as I as, as I uh, I rant against Facebook all the time, I am a shareholder. So there you go. <laughs> and then the second one is real brief, uh, and this was courtesy of Freeport Press, and the title is WSJ Wall Street Journal sees the future in print. And I thought this was interesting. Just a little side note. So the Wall Street Journal is launching what they think is going to be an annual publication called The Future of Everything. And the first one is called 50 Experts Explain Where Where We're Heading and How We'll Get There. And they're launching it as a print-only magazine, and they believe this will be an annual publication. So I just thought that that was interesting that the Wall Street Journal is coming out, and they're actually saying, look, this this type of story that we're trying to tell is best told in print. For whatever they don't go into the reasons, but I just think that it's interesting with all the digital stuff. We're still seeing certain things can be told and shown, and uh, stories especially uh, really, really well in print and design from that standpoint. So I just thought that was that was interesting. That's a really cool one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And they use the word content marketing even in an article that in we another, didn't cover yeah. this week. Yeah, you mean Wall Street Journal? They're yeah, getting there. Exactly. We yeah. love you. We love you, WSJ. We, we know absolutely you're coming around. do. So one one of these days. So and you have <laughs> uh, you have this old marketing this week. I, I do have this old marketing, and it it's not terribly old, but it's a really interesting one. So I thought uh, it would be a good one for us to cover on the show. Um, do you have you done the uh, the ancestry dot com thing where you go find your roots and all that kind of stuff? I have I have not. Now you need to talk me into it. Should I? I, I well, I started it. It's a time suck. You know, you really. I I, I don't know if you've seen. Um, I mean, our good friend Lauren McDonald, who spoke, of course, at our master classes and and um, uh, and um, and is you know is one of the evangelists at IBM has done it. And I won't. You know, I obviously I won't belie any information out of our Facebook feed and all that because we're friends. But he had some real success with it. I mean, some amazing, quite eye-opening wow. success with it. Um, and so, yeah, I tried it and got a little bit into it. And, and as it turned into be like a real time suck, I was like, wow, I just don't have the time for this right now, but it's really interesting. Um, anyway, so this article that we'll link to in the show notes talks about ancestry.com and how the, the, the headline of the article, which is really talking through the example here, the case is ancestry.com uses uh, drives of sales not it's not high level awareness and they're a business to consumer brand of course uh, via content marketing um, and the article comes from adexchanger.com which talks about advertising of course and so I just thought it was a really interesting example of this old marketing because it's new it's a new article but it's but it's something they've been doing for the last three to five years here and it's just really interesting and they so it starts out by saying basically for the last three years ancestry.com has been using content to drive sales um, with articles that they're writing in their blog and so they 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 create these this content in their blog which they've had for as many years and publish it out and it would like a, a, an article might be do you have royal blood and so you read this article that sort of talks about do you have royal blood and how you know how you would do that and and the, they've got two calls to action as the um, uh, head of content marketing Steve Dalton says basically we're hoping either to get a DNA sign-up, an Ancestry DNA sign-up, which is for them as a customer, or a subscription, basically a a subscription to the Ancestry.com platform. And so they produce this, and every article they produce has a content strategy behind it and then also has a marketing and promotion strategy behind it. They're using things like Outbrain, of course, and Taboola and and Facebook to distribute all this stuff in both paid and earned fashion. Um, And 
what they're doing is they're looking at all these distribution methods and really creating a science around creating all these wonderful articles that are valuable um, to their consumers, but really driving both, basically both types of calls to action on each one and then testing it out there. And as basically he says is like, although content marketing isn't Ancestry's most efficient channel, as Dalton says, he says, it generates really high engagement. In other words, the audience is much more uh, 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 or excuse me, the audience is much less qualified, so he doesn't convert quite as many. But when they do, they stick around longer. And the reason I love that quote so much, and I'll say it again, the audience is less qualified for his sales funnel, so he doesn't convert quite as many of them through these content-driven programs. But when they do convert, they end up sticking around longer with the thing. So what he's finding is is that people who are engaged through the content like this, do you have royal blood or do you, you know, do you want to engage in this thing, are people like me or somebody that wants to really get into it, you know, and really understand it. They're not just somebody who's going to come in, maybe pay a little bit of money and then churn out right away. There's somebody who's going to come in and really stick with it. And as he says, his theory on why that's true is he says we try to create the hook and what kind of discoveries could I make? So these people are not looking to just make a transaction. They're actually looking to take a journey with Ancestry, which he says makes the experience more personal than basically other landing pages that they might create. The reason I love this example so much, and they go the article goes on to talk through the case studies, and it's got some numbers on the click-throughs, and it's just a wonderful case study. And the thing I like about it is, is that, one, they've been doing it consistently for three years. Two... The business case, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, but the business case being such an important thing here that you have to continually make, isn't that we're going to beat the traditional forms of marketing. In other words, they do landing pages, they do advertising, they do all that stuff. It's not going to beat it. We're not using traditional marketing as sort of this leverage or foundational point that they're trying to supersede with content marketing. What they're suggesting is, is that content marketing isn't even the most efficient channel for them, but it is an efficient channel for creating a really loyal customer. And so it becomes one more integrated method of marketing that adds value to the total integrated marketing package. That's what I love so much about that. Content marketing here isn't their primary form of marketing, but it's an important secondary form of marketing. And I just think it's a great example of this old marketing. Oh, that I love that. Well, you talk about that all the time in the master classes too, where it's like you've got to really look at who your audience is in this perspective. It doesn't always mean they're going to close faster. They may actually right. take longer to close, but they could be more valuable customers. Well, that's, that's right. And you just got to discover that, right? And that gets to what you talk about in the masterclass, which is what the what does a subscriber do versus a non-subscriber do? And in their case, the Ancestry.com, what they found was is that fewer subscribers close but the ones that do stick around longer, and it's just a that's just a cool thing because that means you can have you're not you're not cannibalizing from your existing marketing programs by doing this because you're talking about really attracting an audience that quite frankly is less qualified. So if you draw the sort of you know Venn diagram or bullseye circle, you sort of got these core people that you're targeting with traditional buy now messages in marketing. Then you've got this sort of outside marketer uh, circle of people who are eh, mildly interested at best in this thing. And what you're using the content to do is to generate passion, basically to generate something that makes them more interested. And when they come in through that venue, they're even more interested than the ones that you've hit with the buy now message. And so if you can slowly start to evolve that. And you you start to you start to really drive down your marketing costs while you increase your stickiness, and it's just a it becomes a great program, and it's just that simple. I love that example. That's yeah, a, it doesn't ha- see, it doesn't have to be that old to make this old marketing. No, it, not it just of course has not. To be good. It just has it to be has good to be. and they and consistent and having been done it for some time. You know. There you go. Well, so. so um, uh, yeah, what's what's your what's your deal this week? I, I know you're am, in Minneapolis, right? I'm in Minneapolis. It's the last business trip of the year. I could not be more excited about that. I have to tell you. So I come home on Tuesday night, and then I'm home for the holidays and and all of that. And so I'm here visiting with the lovely folks at Thomson Reuters, and so looking forward to a great class with them and and advisory day, and and then and then home. How about yourself? Excellent. No, I mean, most of it, you know, we're hunkering down. We've got uh, early bird for, um, for intelligent content conference. We got, we just launched, you know, the opening for content marketing world is, I can't believe that 
for 2016. It's We're amazing. already open for registration. We're getting registrations coming in, which is even more amazing to me. Uh, but yeah, it's just—it's almost just like getting things in order, getting the strategy down for 2016, and it looks to be—we're pretty pretty excited, obviously, about what 2016 holds. But uh, don't want to get there too fast yet. I've got some time. <laughs> yeah, now, to your point, I mean, now we're pretty much travel is done, so I'm looking yeah. forward to spend some time with the boys and and uh, just enjoying that time. So absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, until next week, then that is it. For Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose, and we are signing off for this week. And, you know, do tweet us up. Do send us those stories, especially during the holiday season. It keeps us from having to surf the web and finding all these things. We absolutely adore you for doing so. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Um, and send it. And if you've got a question, of course, send an email. This old marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 108, We hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All those links and everything we talked about today will be in the show notes available to you when we publish on Monday night um, to the regular show and, of course, on the show notes that are available on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. Remember, folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.